Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Thanks for listening to The Gist. If you want to check out an ad-free version and bonus content, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. It is the best way to directly support our endeavors. It's Tuesday, July 4th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And as mentioned in my one previous utterance this show, it is the 4th of July. I remember when I was a kid, uh, another child, perhaps a, a clever young tyke or just a bully, was reading me one of those mind teaser books. And he said, in other countries, do they have the 4th of July? And I said, well, you know, if it's a date on the calendar, yeah, they have it, but it's not their day of independence like it is here. And he said, no, 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 do they have the 4th of July? Like, I don't know what question you're asking. Uh, I know that, like, the murder happened because he stood on a block of ice, and Encyclopedia Brown knows that lobsters only turn red when cooked, but that's my answer. And he said, wrong. They do have the 4th of July. We only call the 4th of July a holiday because that's how we celebrate it here in the Stop It. That's exactly what I said, jerkish young lad. And that boy's name was Thomas Jefferson. I'm starting starting hot with the anecdotes, am I not? Well, on this show, we're going to mix it up a little because I'll give you the traditional U.S. Independence Day, but then I'm going to give you... An Independence Day from another country, which has come up again recently, I interview Craig McAllister about Scottish independence. When this show first started, they considered a referendum, and uh, I was intrigued by what Scottish independence might mean. This Scottish independence referendum failed only by a little. It never really went away, and it's still currently being considered and debated by Glaswegians and those who call Scotland home, Craig McAllister. And then I will be interviewing Gordon S. Wood about the friendship between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, that young kid who gave me that question. But first, Craig McAllister. He at least has a great Scottish accent. The Scottish independence referendum goes down this September. Very straightforward question to be asked of all Scotsmen and Scotswomen. Should Scotland be an independent country? Of course, up until then, there'll be lots of debate back and forth. So we thought what we do here on The Gist is talk to a Scotsman about it. Not an expert, not a professor, not someone who's been fighting for it or against it their whole life. Just a Scotsman. And I think we found a good one. His name is Craig McAllister. Hello there. And I want to tell our listeners your qualification. You're Scottish. and I'm, uh, I'm very Scottish. You're very Scottish. Scottish. If you cut me through the middle, you'd see the Made in Scotland tattooed through my body, yes. <laughs> so you're very Scottish, and <laughs> you're opinionated? Yeah, I think so. So tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm 44 years old. I stay in Ayrshire, on the west coast of Scotland. 
to I'm married to Anne, my wife, and I've got two lovely kids, Erin, who's 12, and Callum, who is 7. I support my local football team, Kilmarnock, who didn't do too well recently, but um, hopefully next season we'll have a better season. By day, I'm a primary school teacher, so I teach um, 11, 12-year-olds who are just going to go to high school. And at night time, I'm a writer. I write a music blog called plainorpan.com. A very popular blog, believe it or not. So let's talk about this as if we were uh, having uh, beers, having uh, maybe a Bellhaven down at the pub, okay? Okay, right, that sounds good. Would you just turn to your neighbor and say, what do you think about this independence vote, or you have to bring it up and be a little cautious about it? Well, I'll tell you, actually. What's interesting is that people are kind of scared to mention it, um, because everyone's got their own personal politics and beliefs about it all. Um, I was at Friends last week, actually, um, having a Bellhaven, as you do, and the subject came up, and these are friends that I've known for a long time, and none of us knew what the other were thinking on the whole subject, you know, and it created quite an interesting debate, and you know, you don't like to bring politics into your your sort of social life, but it, it did create this, a whole conversation that none of us had had with one another, and uh, people are, are sort of loath to talk so much about it, um, and it's such a huge thing for our country that, that we need to talk about it. Someone who was in favour of voting yes on that referendum, who wants Scotland to be independent, what would they be touchy-tetchy about if you disagreed? Would they say you weren't patriotic enough? Patriotism's a huge part of it, actually. But you've got to see beyond the patriotism and see what it does for your country. The people who tend to be no um, and against it, without being stereotypical and generalist about it, tend to be um, maybe an older generation who have grown up in better, wealthier times and they've had more disposable income to spend. By and large, their lives been quite good. People of my generation and younger, totally different. We have the, the, the pension system in Scotland's all changed, um, or Britain's, sorry, has all changed. And um, people have been forced to work longer. Um, when they retire, they're going to have less money in their hand. And it's not such a good deal. People um, in Westminster and London who govern the whole country, um, by and large, are voted in by people in pockets of England. And the people who make the rules in, the, in Great Britain haven't been voted in, by and large, by Scottish people. And that's, that's a huge problem for us as well. The question that it boils down to is um, if you believe you've got a the best life you can have with the government we have just now, then you would vote no. Mm-hmm. If you think that the government you have just now aren't doing the best for you and you could have a better system, a better country, um, you would vote yes. And so where do you think the generation line starts? What age maybe becomes the dividing point? I would say maybe 10 years older than me, mid-50s and up. Okay, mm-hmm. People who are due to retire or have retired, and by and large to their working life, they've had disposable income so they can... They can have their holidays every year and they can have their one or two cars and their nice house. And, you know, their kids are maybe at university age and they've managed to fund them through university um, by, you know, having second um, houses or flats for the, the, the kids to live in while they study. Um, I mean, I've got kids and, and I think my daughter's 12, nearly 13. You know, she, she'll leave school in less than five years' time. Um, and hopefully to go to university and I think I don't know how I can afford to put her to university <laughs> you know um, university um, education in Scotland's free if you're Scottish which is a brilliant thing um, it should be free for all and when it comes to the referendum depending on what way it goes if it goes yes then that's okay but if it goes no one of the first things that David Cameron and his government will do is take away free education I know in America you have to pay for your college but over here we don't and um, I think we benefit from it I, and I should mention that the median age in Scotland is right about 40, 
And so if you factor in the fact that, well, what's, how old do you have to be to vote on this referendum? The SNP, Scottish National Party, they try to engage younger voters. Mm-hmm. So up until now, it's been 18, 18 before you can vote. They've changed the voting age to 16. So they're trying to encourage the youth vote. And uh, hopefully, you know, they should gather wheels and uh, the younger generations will vote. I bring this up just to mention that if you say the dividing line's around 54, that's almost, you know, half the people voting on this will be 54 and over and half yeah. will be 54 and under. So, yes. you know, you can't just say, oh, only old people will favor uh, staying part of Great Britain. Well, no, they won't. Yeah. Um, and there's a huge influence on parents talking to their children. The problem we have is that there's no clear-cut answers. It's not like um, if we are independent, this is what will happen. If yeah. we stay with uh, the UK, this is what will happen because nobody really knows all the answers. Well, as I read it over here, it seems like every day there's another story that can be interpreted as a scare story. Today there was a lot of professors saying research funding will dry up if we go independent. But I'm sure people there are like, do we even believe this? You know, how do we evaluate the people making these claims? Both sides of the campaign, the no vote and the yes vote, tend to be focused on the propaganda side of it. They all seem to say, don't believe what other people are saying. It's very hard to work out. You know, one day you're reading that Scotland won't have the, the pound anymore, the next day you're reading it have to be the euro. Nobody really knows the answers to just now. And there's some things you need to know the answers to. If we vote yes, you do want to know how you're going to get paid the next day, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess the big question right now at this moment is, will the vote yes or no, Scotland as its own independent country, Scotland remaining a part of Great Britain, will any of that get the Scottish soccer team closer to qualifying for the World Cup ever? I would love to swear, but I can't, but uh, blinking well better. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Craig McAllister, thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. Speak to you soon. Craig McAllister is a Scotsman living in Scotland, thinking about Scottish independence. He blogs about music, not this, at plainorpan.com. They were two of the greatest Americans, of course, two of the first three presidents. One was vice president to the other, and both are remembered rightly as essential founding fathers. But they were also, personally speaking, friends divided. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson are who we're talking about, and Gordon S. Wood is who we're talking to. He's the Brown professor and winner of the Pulitzer Prize who has written about these great Americans to add to his pantheon of revolutionary figures that he's written about. Hello. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. What compelled you to write about these men, not necessarily the men themselves, but the relationships between the men? Was that the compelling thing? You're writing about a relationship as much as you are a biography? Originally, I had just finished uh, editing three volumes of Adams's writings for the Library of America. And um, I thought I would write about Adams, but my uh, editor um, at uh, Penguin simply suggested, why don't you compare Adams with Jefferson? And Suddenly, that struck me as uh, a great idea, and I'm glad he suggested it because I think I learned more about both of them because I pitted them one against the other. Wait, was the idea that Jefferson sells books better? No, <laughs> I think it was that they they differ so much, and yeah. you have one who's an idealist, a, a radical liberal, 18th century style, and the other a conservative. They, they couldn't have differed more on more issues, and, and suddenly they're friends 
but divided friends because they differed on every conceivable important question you could imagine. Except for liberty from England. Right. No, they supported the revolution and yeah. uh, they, the one thing they had in common, they both hated Hamilton. Uh, Alexander Hamilton, yes. deeply. <laughs> One winds up uh, getting it a lot worse in the musical than the other. John Adams really is spared, by the way. <laughs> right. No, he yeah. uh, he's not mentioned much. Well, it's funny. We go through, you know, historically, there are these great polarities among revolutionary figures, and you've written about so many. I do think that Jefferson gets compared to Hamilton a lot, and then Adams gets compared to Jefferson a lot. And then Jefferson's relationship with Washington gets talked about a lot. I guess my point is Jefferson becomes sort of a, a touchstone in which a lot of the other founding fathers are judged and seen. Right. Well, Jefferson is is uh, the model for America. I mean, he stands for America. The Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal. We have this huge memorial at, in the District of Columbia dedicated to Jefferson there's nothing for Adams. No. Jefferson's Monticello is visited. It's a World Heritage Site. It's visited by hundreds of thousands of people every year. Jefferson is really a celebrity. He was a celebrity then, and he's, he's now still, even despite his slaveholding. Yeah, he and he wrote for the ages, and he saw himself, well, he was loath to admit he was an aristocrat, but of course he saw himself as that, and there was a glow to him, an almost godlike glow to him, and there is Adams absolutely in his shadow, just in terms of magnetism and in terms of personality and in terms of even his style of writing. He was just grouchy on the page as opposed to, you know, writing with flourishes that generations would be able to enjoy. Well, well, they were in different celebrity leagues. I mean, at one point in their correspondence, Adam says to Jefferson, well, how many letters do you get every year? And, and Jefferson says, well, I get 2,000 and something. And Adams is shocked because he only gets about 200 and something. So he's 10 times the, the number of uh, correspondents. And, and he's corresponding with the, the great naturalist Alexander Humboldt in Germany. He's corresponding with the Tsar. I mean, uh, Adams has none of this kind of uh, uh, celebrity status at all. So he knows he's in a different league. He knows that Jefferson is his superior in that respect. And their great bonding comes when they're representing America overseas there right. in France. And and later, uh, later they were in England and France. And during those times, you know, the book is called Friends Divided. Mostly the periods of them being united, the person of Abigail Adams was really in the middle of that. Very much so. You know, Jefferson's abroad as a widower. He had no no family. I mean, he had his daughters, but uh, the, he, he bonded with the, with the Adams family and was visit, he visited them. He, he would go to the symphony or, or the uh, museum with, with John Quincy, uh, Adams's son, very bright uh, young man. And he was part of their family. And, and I think he really experienced family life in a way that he hadn't earlier. And uh, the, when Adams is go to London as minister to London, he sends things to Abigail. He's actually doing shopping for her. And he, he flirts a little bit in, in his uh -huh. correspondence with her. They had a really close relationship uh, that came out of that bonding, first in France and then the correspondence uh, with them between France and, and England.
Could a man come to power in Massachusetts if he had Jefferson's belief? Same question. Could a John Adams type, and let's take as part of that his strong opposition to slavery, could a man such as that, a, a middle-born man, come to power in Virginia of the mid-18th century? Well, no. Middling people. You had to be a wealthy planter, um, a slaveholder, to get into the House of Burgesses, the Colonial Assembly. And, and that's what catapulted Jefferson. He... His mother was a Randolph. He was uh, already uh, slated for top spot. And then when he inherited his father's uh, slaves and land and then his father-in-law's slaves and land, he already was one of the wealthiest members of the Virginia aristocracy. And, and that's what uh, enabled him to immediately move into the, uh, into the House of Burgesses, the colonial legislature. Uh, Adams was a middling born from Braintree, uh, he just had different circumstances. He never acquired much wealth. He was certainly well off, but it came from his legal career. He was a practicing attorney and one of the best, if not the best. By 1770, he was probably the best attorney and the busiest attorney in, in the colony of Massachusetts. And yet it is, I think, ironic that it's the aristocrat who today we'd call the populist and John Adams who was much more of the elitist. Well, that's exactly right. The planters in Virginia are the leaders of the Republican Party, which is uh, that's where the irony or the paradox, parent paradox lists. They, these are aristocrats, all of them, the most aristocratic people in all of North America. And yet uh, they're the leaders of the popular party, the Republican Party. And it's the Federalists in New England who are uh, frightened of democracy with good reason because they, uh, they knew what it could mean. Uh, the people weren't quite so willing to defer to, the, to their betters in Massachusetts as they were in, in, uh, in Virginia. Does John Adams losing uh, re-election to Thomas Jefferson, uh, does that pretty much put the nail in the coffin for That's years it. and That's years? That's the yeah. humiliation. He just can't believe that he, you know, Washington's elected for two terms. Presumably, Washington could have served for life. He would mm -hmm. have been elected. And, and that's what most people thought the president would do, that he would be elected and reelected until he until he died. And, and we were inventing this, you know. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, but but uh, Washington serves two terms, but he wants to get back to Mount Vernon. So he refuses to go to a third term. And and Adams thought that he would at least be reelected for a second term as Washington had. So it's a humiliation for him to lose to, to Jefferson. And he refuses to attend the inauguration of his successor, which is the only president, uh, the only person to who to do that in our history. He, he leaves on the 4 a.m. stage. He wants to get out of town as fast as he can. It was sad because he, he, he did end the conflict with France, but the news of the convention that was signed with France ending the, the Quasi War uh, came after the election. So he never got the benefit of, yeah. of his, one of his most courageous acts in his career. So there's a bitterness and an anger there that, that accounts for the, the break. Well, we know what Jefferson did during the Adams presidency. He was vice president. But what did Adams, what was Adams' role in public life during the eight years Jefferson was president? Well, he was retired and he, he got involved uh, trying to defend uh, his career. He wrote for the newspapers and he watched from afar uh, what was happening. And of course, he had a son, John Quincy, who was deeply involved in politics. And so uh, John Quincy becomes a Republican. So there's an easing of the relationship, which... Uh, easing of the passions that, that Adams, the senior, had, and, and I think sets the stage for the reconciliation, which doesn't come until 1812. 
and almost entirely through the efforts of, uh, of Benjamin Rush, uh, Dr. Benjamin Rush, who, who knew both men but knew Adams best. He brings them together. He did a, he pulled a little move that I see in sitcoms sometimes where he like, he didn't trick Adams, but he told him about a dream and so well, forth. Yeah, yeah. He tells it. Well, he, what he do is talk to each of them and say, look, the other one said that he loves you. Yes. And then, <laughs> then he'd the, go to the, the other trick. one and say, he loves you. And, yeah. and uh, they, he sets them up, but mm-hmm. he had to work on it two years. I mean, it wasn't something that happened overnight, uh, but once it breaks, uh, then the letters flow. Uh, speaking of the correspondence, as a historian, you have to live in the world of your subjects. You have to just like live with their words and maybe come up for air every few minutes. Did you enjoy living in Jefferson's world more than Adams? No, I enjoyed living in Adams. Oh, you wow. read his diary, and you there's nothing like it in in uh, in American uh, literature. I know of no diary like it. Certainly, no founder wrote. He started writing in college, right after college, and he sounds like an adolescent because he tells you about every little moment of anxiety or it's like a kid coming back from a party saying well what did I say did I say the wrong things did I offend that woman did I he's just he he says everything that he's feeling and whoever does that I mean there are very few diaries with which are quite as explicit as his yeah and then he's a president for our anxious age Right, exactly. The first he's neurotic a, president. Yeah, he suffers that anxiety until he gets married, and then the thing becomes mature, and he becomes a diff- somewhat different person. So it heartens me as a fan of history and a patriot to see that they made up. Uh, they both die on the same date, exactly 50 years after signing the Declaration of Independence. But that's a personal story. And as I was reading the book, I wondered, in terms of having an impact on America, does their thawing of relationships, does it, does it, did it actually mean anything in terms of how the course of America was set, the fact that these two great men who America owes so much to f- finally found out how to g- get along? Well, I think it has some meaning uh, in that it, it shows that two partisan people who are really partisan, and, and we think we have partisanship now, but it was nothing compared to what existed in 1800, for example. See, neither of these parties accepted the legitimacy of the other. So it was a much more serious split in, in 1800 than we have today, even though we think this is the worst that, that, that could be. Um, and so I think it's important that these two men who represented these two parties and ran against each other uh, eventually became reconciled. It, it somehow gives us some sense that, that uh, we're, we're able to bring uh, opposites together. Uh, but it is uh, it is a different world back then, and, and 1798, 1799 was a critical moment in our history. We were threatened with invasion from France, and they had a fifth column here that was going to help set up a puppet government, just as Napoleon was doing all over Europe. So it, it, we have to appreciate how serious that crisis was. It helps explain the Alien and Sedition Acts, for example, enacted by the Federalists, which have, which have hurt them in, in their historical reputation ever since. In the beginning of the book, you talk about, and this is true, compared to Adams, Jefferson's place in history is much more celebrated. But these days, I do think, I mean, within the last couple years, his reputation has taken a hit because of re-examination of Sally Hemings. And it wasn't just a slaveholder. He was, especially compared to Washington, much less eager to emancipate his slaves. All these reasons. So as a historian, do you think there's going to be a reevaluation and a, a degradation of Jefferson's reputation? Or do you think this is like a pendulum? No, I think it's, he suffered terribly as a, as a private person. 
But what he said in the Declaration of Independence uh, sort of transcends his failings, so to speak, his personality. All men are created equal. When Lincoln said, all honor to Jefferson, that did it. I mean, we, that Declaration of Independence is the basis for our, uh, our democracy. And so I think because he was the author of it, we'll live on and, and in a way that Adams won't. Someone said, if you don't believe in Thomas Jefferson, you don't believe in America. That's right. That's his first uh, biographer, Parton, wrote that in 1870s. And, and uh, I think that's still true. Jefferson has, you have to see him as his words transcend his personality and his weaknesses and his, his slaveholding because he did make that statement, which uh, uh, he didn't even mean all, all men. He meant only, in his case, all white men, although <laughs> I think many of his colleagues, most, most citizens, believe that all men are created equal. He meant that literally, and that the differences that emerge are due to the environment, to the education of, the, of people. And that's why we, as a people, have been so obsessed by education, because by and large, we accept Jefferson's view. What's what's important is how we're treated and, and how we're raised and how, what kind of experience we have. And, and that, I think, makes Jefferson the basis for our, uh, our democracy. Adams is much too, you might say, realistic or, or ornery and, and uh, cynical. He can't, uh, he can't speak to us in that sense. Gordon Stewart Wood is the Alva Away University professor at Brown. He won the Pulitzer for the Radicalism of the American Revolution. His latest book is Friends Divided, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Thank you, Professor Wood. Thank you. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is chief fireworks procurer of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Peru, Peru, and thanks for listening.